Well, a very good morning to everybody, Mount Pleasant, Alma, and online. Thrilled to be together. Welcome to a brand new series. It's going to be quite brief, two weeks, God and Culture. Uh, I have a feeling that many followers of Christ, uh, two weeks from now, are going to say, I needed to hear that. Didn't know quite how to understand or how to express, uh, but I needed to hear that. I think there are some others of us here today, and you are going to be thoroughly, thoroughly challenged. And I pray that that is a rich blessing for you in Christ Jesus. Uh, if I could introduce a word that will be familiar to many of you, per- perhaps unfamiliar to a few, and it's the word worldview. Uh, what, what is your worldview? And by that, I'm asking the question, how is it, uh, what filter do you look through to understand this world that you live in and your place in it, um, the direction of your life, your purpose, your identity, who you are, and how you relate to other people and to all the things that are going on around you. What does your worldview look like? On what basis do you live your life? On what basis do you make decisions? How do you understand those kinds of things? Do you have a foundation in your life from which you filter and comprehend and understand, and as a result of that, you function in a way that affects like the big things in your life, very important things in your life, things like the relationships that you have with your family and your friends and your colleagues and your neighbors, the people that you get to live life and share your time with, or your career, or your marriage, or sex, or your children, the big, big things that are part of all of our lives, money. Do you have a filter upon, or a foundation upon which you are able to say, This is how I understand this, and therefore, this is how I make decisions and function and relate and fit into this world as a person. What is right and what is wrong? How do I determine those things in my life? That's a big thing. How do I understand myself moving forward into my future? And how will I navigate this world? Whether you know this or not, you have a worldview. You might be keenly aware of what that is, or you might have no idea of how you come to the decisions that you come to, but you have a worldview. In the United States today, we are seeing a thousand different worldviews, and that won't come as a surprise to anybody as I say that. We see people functioning, which reflects such practices as postmodernism or Marxism or secular humanism. And naturally, if you're going to think that way, that's going to drive the way you live your life. It's going to drive your lifestyle. How many of you would say that you know people and the reason why they get up out of bed in the morning is they're saying, man, I get up because I I am driven to make money. And you could look at that person and you would say, I think that's everything about them. Certainly there's some other pieces to their life, but man, that is the main thing in their life. Like, I'm going to make money. That's a worldview. There are other people who would look at this world and say, man, there's enough challenges out there. I think we should just relax and enjoy ourselves. I mean, let's just have fun when we can. And let's just give ourselves a bit of enjoyment and a bit of pleasure. And let's just be happy, for goodness sake. And you listen to that and you say, that sounds fairly reasonable now, doesn't it? Other people, and you know these people, it may be you. And it's, it's family. My family is the most important thing to me. And being connected and loyal uh, and my life being interwoven with my family, that's what, that's what my, my life is all about. You get some people where it's this idea of like, well, I think we're all supposed to be nice people. We should all just be really nice. Now, 
how that is defined changes in a million different directions. We should all be tolerant of each other, and we should be nice people. And then you've got the opposite, and I know you know people like this, every man for himself. I'm going to get ahead. I'm going to do what i got to do to get where I need to go. Others, oh, it's a work ethic. Man, I, I'm going to work hard in life. I'm going to save hard in life. I'm going to make sure that I have enough. I'm going to make sure that I am provided for and that I am safe and that I am secure. The ways in which people understand and filter and comprehend their place, their identity, their purpose, their direction, and the basis on which things are right or wrong or how they make decisions vary as to how many people are on the planet Earth, I think. So in this church, how do we do that? Well, in this church, we have a high view of the Word of God. This is our worldview. This is how we comprehend and understand this place that we live and our place in it and who we are and how we make decisions and what is right and what is wrong and what that looks like and our future and our ambitions and money and relationships and marriage and sex and children, all of those things. This is the filter upon which we understand, the lens upon which we look through to see our identity and our place in this world and how we think and therefore how we function as a result. And as Christ followers, we make no apology to say that we are following God's leadership and His direction and His compass and not our own. The primary means by which we do that is this sacred book right here in front of me. We believe that God is smarter and wiser than we are. Amen? You knew I was looking for an amen on that one. You saw the head tilt. <laughs> Come with me on that one for sure. Anything other than that, and I think we might be kidding ourselves. Now, if we are to have integrity, this is hugely important, we must place our trust in this book as a whole. And so I hope you hear the integrity with which I'm attempting to state this. We can never... And we will never, ever, ever say, well, we're going to keep the bits in here that we like, and we're going to discard the bits in here that we don't like. I don't know if I understand that. I don't know if that makes me feel good. Therefore, I'm going to get a little scissors, and I'm going to cut out these little bits that I don't like. If we are to have integrity as a people of God, we can never, ever go there. We cannot do that. And the moment that we do, I become a hypocrite. The moment that we do that, we as a church become riddled with hypocrisy. So we refuse to highlight the bits that we like and discard the bits that we don't like. And I'll be honest with you, there are some bits in this sacred book, if I had my way and my preference, I would take a little bit of white out. I would get a little scissors. And I'll tell you why, because it would make my life easier. Because there are certain things that I would like to think and do that I want to do, I really do, I want to do these things. And God says, no, I actually know what's best for you. I've called you to do something very different. I'd rather take it out. There's some bits in there, I'm like, really, God? You functioned like that? You did that? You, you said that? You went there? I don't know if I like that you did that. It's actually evidence that this isn't a man-made book. Because if I were to write it, I think it would look a little bit different. We will never cherry-pick the truth based on what feels good. We will never cherry-pick the truth based on what is going on in this culture 
in this world that we live in. I am a middle-aged man. For those of you who are younger than me, let me say this to you. You need to know this. The standards of this world and what is right and what is wrong is shifting sands. It is changing on a daily basis. This never changes because our God never changes. We will not change the Bible. We will follow the Bible. The Bible is the basis for your worldview if you call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ. We must not change the Bible. The Bible was made to change you. What is needed in this nation is a remnant of people who will elevate and stand upon the Word of God as a divine compass over their lives. Let me say that one more time. What is needed in this nation is a remnant of people who will elevate and trust and believe and live their lives based upon the truth that is in the Word of God as a divine compass over their lives. It boils down to a very, very simple question of which I can only consider two possible options in terms of trying to answer this question. The question is huge. Who's in charge? You've got to ask the question. I can only think of two answers to this question. Who is in charge? You will either say, I'm in charge, and therefore what matters most is my opinion, my understanding, and what I want to do, and the direction that I want to go in my life. And I can only think of one other option that you would say, no, I'm not in charge. Actually, I believe that God is in charge. And therefore, what matters most is not my opinion, but what He says. What matters most is His understanding, not my understanding. What matters most is the direction that He would set in course for my life, not what I want to do. And those are your two options for this question, who's in charge? I would challenge you with that question today. God gives us a very loving, loving caution when it comes to your worldview. This is what he says in the book of wisdom, the book of Proverbs, chapter 19. He says, if you quit listening, dear child, look at the language, dear child. If you quit listening, dear child, and strike off on your own, you will soon be out of your death. Ever done that? I've done that. How many of you honestly would say, I can look back and I can think of times where I struck off on my own, where maybe even somebody came to me and tried to speak some common sense into my life. Maybe even I heard from God, and I did not heed what God would say or what others would say, because I knew better. And now I have a little bit of hindsight, and I can look back at myself and go, what was I thinking? How many of you have done that in your life? Alma, online, everybody, man, hands up all over the room. You have the hindsight to say, man, I didn't know which way was up or down. I didn't know what I was doing. I thought I did, but I didn't. And here's the crazy thing about that situation. You would think that with enough hindsight and with enough repetition of looking back and going, man, what was I thinking? I fell into another mistake. I fell into another trap. I went the wrong direction. I didn't listen. I should have listened. I thought I knew better than everybody else. I thought I knew better than him. You would think that we would say, well, I'll never make that mistake. But actually, we continue to make that mistake again and again and again. Something in our nature. I want you to hear the heart of a shepherd today. This week and next week, this series will be very, very difficult for some of you to hear. Because you want to be in charge. 
That's why. For no other reason. That is the, the fundamental basis. You might say, oh, I take issue with this little thing that you, I don't like that what you said, but actually, here's what it is. It'll be difficult for you to hear because you want to be in charge. I will say things to you today and next week that you do not want to hear. I promise you I have wrestled to be standing in front of you today. In fact, it would be so much easier to just not say this stuff, to not go there. If you know me at all, if you've been in this church for any length of time, I would ask and I would hope that you would give me the respect of listening very carefully to what I say to you, even if what I say to you rubs you up the wrong way. If everything inside of you says, I don't like that. I hope that you would stick with me and not run away. I would hope that you would recognize my desire for integrity, the whole Word of God, in what I say to you. And I hope that you would recognize that it would be easier to just stand up here week in and week out and actually just say what I think you want to hear. But if I stand up here and say what I think you want to hear, I will fail you as a pastor and as a shepherd. If I stand up here, and there's a New Testament phrase, and this is what it's called, if I stand up here week in and week out, and if I tickle your ears, do you know what I could probably do? And look at the human nature in this. I could probably get a bigger church. I probably could. I could probably get more people. I could probably get larger crowds. And surely that's what all of this is about. For me, anyway, i got to have a big church with lots of people. Actually, what I've got to do is be obedient to the Lord. That's what I've got to do. And if I don't say these things, then I will fail to love you. I will fail to love you. Years ago, me and my buddy, we'd spend time together. We'd hang out, kick the ball. He'd go to my house. I'd go to his house. Have a good time. And over the course of time, what I found was, I kind of discovered with my friend that we agreed on a lot of things. Maybe we agreed on about seven out of ten things. And then we'd find those three things that we didn't agree on. So what would we do with that? Well, I'd call him an idiot, and he'd call me a moron. And then we'd laugh, and we'd get on with our lives. We'd get on with our friendship. Today, my observation of this culture is that if you cannot agree with me on 10 out of 10 things, then now you are my enemy. Something has shifted in this culture. If you don't agree with everything that I say is right, then I'm going to stiff arm you. You can no longer be a part of my life. And I would ask you right now, would you just pray quietly? Dear God, tell me what I need to hear. I trust you, God, even when it's not what I want to hear. Church, that is the fundamental belief that God is good. That is the fundamental belief that God has good in store for you. Today, I'm going to be doing two things. I'm going to be opening up God's Word, and I'm going to be responding to a national survey. And I want to show you some things in a national survey that absolutely shocked me. Seven out of ten Americans consider themselves to be Christians. I actually didn't think it was that high. But here's the thing that was shocking in this survey. Six percent of those Christians said that they have a biblical worldview. Six percent of the population of Christians in this country said that this sacred book 
is the worldview by which they understand this place that they live in, who they are, where they're going, what's right, what's wrong, how they make decisions, how they function in their marriage, in their sex life, with their money, with their children, all of it, in their career, all of it, 6%. In the summer, our numbers go down a little bit. People go on vacations and things like that. Throughout the rest of the year, we have somewhere, with all, with all the campuses and the kids, we have somewhere between about 1,500 and about maybe 1,900 people on a given Sunday. It goes up and down all the time. Which would mean, if I would just like throw out really, really rough, crazy numbers, just looking at our community of faith, this local church, that would mean that in our church of a little under 2,000 people, there's about 100 people who have a biblical worldview. I'm not okay with that. I hope you're not okay with that. I don't know where you fall in that, but I certainly want to challenge you in that. So here's how it breaks down. I'm going to show you four pieces from a national survey, and I'm going to respond to that to have a look and see what does God say about that in His Word. So I want to show you four worldviews, but each of them are broken. Broken worldview number one, humanity is basically good. This is what Christians in this country believe. You're fine. You're absolutely fine. Now, if you're sitting there and you're thinking to yourself, well, what's wrong with that? We're okay. I mean, deep down, there's a bit of good in there somewhere, right? Well, the Bible explicitly tells us that I'm not good, and neither are you. That our very nature, your nature, is depraved. That you and I are sinners and that we are innately selfish that we are completely tainted by original sin that we wholeheartedly support and agree and function in on a daily basis in our lives. Your thoughts, your words, your attitudes, your emotions, your physical body, your actions, the Bible explicitly tells us that you do not measure up to God's standards of holy, holy, holy. You don't. And as a result... If you think that you're all good, here's where that goes, then I don't need a Savior. If we're basically good, I don't need God, I don't need Jesus, and the cross was for nothing because I've got this, I've got it covered. Here's what the Bible tells and says about you. Genesis chapter 6, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. That is damning. You came out of the womb running in the wrong direction, running in rebellion, opposed to the one who loves you. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says, For all of us have sinned, and we have fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible explicitly states that you and I have missed the mark, that we are sinners, that we are apart from God. And what can we do to remedy this? Goodness knows we try. John chapter 15 says, Apart from me, you can do nothing. That's your contribution to this remedy. Nothing. The world says, it's all good. You're not too bad, deep down. Probably your good stuff outweighs the bad stuff. We like phrases like little white lies, petty theft. We like those phrases a whole lot. Little mishaps. Look at King David's diagnosis in the Old Testament. Psalm 40 verse 17 says this, But as for me, I am poor and needy. David, why would you say that? You're king of Israel. You are rich and you have every resource 
that could possibly come to your fingertips. And he says, no, I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about what actually matters. And here's my state. Here's my condition. I am poor and I am needy. And that is a truth. That is a biblical worldview of who I am and who you are. To be completely honest with you, <laughs> we tend to think, you know, on my good days, come on, I'm all right. If I could say this to you with all the love in my heart, you're worse than you think. And so am I. And our efforts to tip the scale in our own favor, to convince ourselves deep down inside that maybe there's some little gem down here of true goodness. Well, I'll tell you what it is. It's actually deceit. Shockingly. It's deceiving you to say, I'm fine. And I know that sounds like a downer, but anything other than that is not the truth. And it presents yourself in a light that basically says, I don't know that I need a Savior. And actually, you desperately need a Savior. I need God. And knowing that I need God is a good and right and holy thing for my life. Broken worldview number two. Human beings are mere biology. This is what Christians in this country are saying that they believe. Freedom. It's a very American word. I actually think that the American concept of freedom is wrapped up in rebellion. Because essentially what it means is, I want to be able to do whatever I want whenever I want. God's definition of freedom is empowerment to do His will. That's a different definition entirely. There's a columnist from the Washington Times by the name of Everett Piper. Look at what this person writes. What does it mean to be a human being? This is such an essential question for our, our generation, for this time right now. Do our appetites and desires define us? And this world would scream at you and say, yes. If you have a desire particularly in your sexuality. That is your identity. Can we or should we rise above our own instincts and our own inclinations? Can we decide to behave differently to how we feel? What a great question. Can you decide to behave differently to the way that you feel, even if you feel strongly? That's the story of my life. That's what I try to do every day, to behave differently to the way that I want to behave. Are we defined by the color of our skin, or are we defined by the content of our character? Is there such a thing as an objective male or an objective female? We'll talk about that a little bit more next week. Here's what the Word of God says to the broken worldview that says we are mere biology, the Word of God says, no, you are made in the image of God. Nobody thinks like this. You're not made in the image of an animal. You're not made in the image of a dog. The truth stands in opposition to our hell-bent determination to diminish men and women to merely two things, what we can produce in life and what we desire what we feel, our inclinations. 
Do you have any more moral significance than a pig, than a cow, than a cat? Do you have any more moral significance than those kinds of things, than a virus? A virus is mere biology. Do you have more moral significance than a virus? Somehow we are different to everything else around us. Think about this. Why do you believe in justice? Why should you? Why do you care about things like civil rights? Why are you indignant when children are killed in a school? Why, does, why do you want to weep when that happens? Why do you physically churn inside when something like that happens in our world? Do we not stand alone on the planet Earth as the only beings that care about tolerance and love and inclusion and equality and fairness? Why is rape wrong? Why would you say that it's wrong? Why do you look at something like slavery and you are reviled inside? Why isn't greed a good thing? Why don't we just have a good old laugh at the Holocaust? Why can't you do that? Defining the human being is the starting point of all that follows. And if we fail at this first starting block, it will impede any meaningful quest for justice and righteousness for individual or even corporate happiness in our lives. Getting the answer wrong to that is as bad as lying to ourselves. St. Augustine, he coined the term about this very thing. He called it fantastica fornication. Translated, it is the prostitution of your own mind to think like this. It is a massive deception. And one that we think is rooted in the concept of freedom. But it's rooted in the concept of rebellion is what it is. That we can decide who we are. I'm going to be the person who tells me who I am. That I have the right to determine what it means to be human. That I can define myself by my libido. That's what I'm going to do. And I'm going to ignore what the Creator says about the created. I'll do that. Forget what you say, I will define that. It is intellectual pornography. It is a sin that leads to so many other sins. It is an anti-God state of mind. For the created to ignore and eradicate the Creator, to take His place, to assume His role, as the definer, is quite simply pride that comes before a fall. Romans says this, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. I literally drove around central Michigan yesterday, and all I could see around me, probably because my heart and my head was in all of this, I looked around me, and as I looked at things, I went, that's a lie. That's a lie. There's a lie. I was just seeing lies littered everywhere around us. This is what it says. And this is such a sad scripture. Because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, it eventually gets to a point where it says God gave them up to their debased thinking. All right. Have your way. Go ahead and think like that. 
And then it says this, and here's the result of it. And they were filled with malice and envy and strife and deceit. And this is such an unbelievable statement. It says, they became the inventors of evil. Oh my goodness. Those are the devastating consequences of abandoning truth. Large percentages of Americans believing, and I'm quoting this study, that humans are merely substance. Christians, we're just substance. We're biological machines. Another chunk of people believing that we are a part of the mind of the universe. I'll be honest with you, I don't even know what that means. I have no clue what that means, that we're a part of the mind of the universe. A smaller number of people believe that we're actually just an illusion, claiming that we don't even exist. There's another percentage of people who do not accept what the Word of God states, that we are created by God for His glory, that we are image bearers of God, that we are fallen, that we are in need of redemption. But that is the biblical worldview of who you are. Here's what the Bible says about you. Please listen carefully to me. You are the pinnacle of creation. You are beloved. You are sons and daughters of the living God. You cannot say this about anything else in all of creation. You bear the image of God. And that means that your very being is a reflection of not your libido or your feelings or your desires or what you can produce or your inclinations, but your very being is a reflection of the one who made you. That is the definition of who you are. That God put you on this earth, in this place, and at this time. And when I look at you, you remind me of Abba Father. That's what I see. That's your identity. And anything less than that is falsehood. Anything less than an adopted child of God, loved by Jesus Christ. Anything less than a new creation is a fallacy. There is not one person listening to the sound of my voice who is an accident. You are not mere biology. You are not just some random cluster of cells. You are not just space dust that happens to be here. Your life is deliberate. And you might be listening to me and saying, look, I feel pretty battered and blue, uh, black and blue. I feel pretty beat up. And this is a harsh world. I understand that. And I've been beat up myself once or twice. But listen to me. Nevertheless, you are noble and you are royal and you are regal and you matter. To whom do you matter? To the one whose opinion matters most. You matter to the king of the universe who flung the galaxies into space, who knows everything about little old you. And King David, he wrestled with the exact same question that we're looking at right now. This is how he puts it in Psalm 8. He says, I look up at the macro skies, dark and enormous. I look up at your handmade sky jewelry. Oh, that language is beautiful. I look up at moons and stars mounted in their settings. And then I look at my micro self and I wonder, why do you bother with us? Why do you take a second to look our way? What do you believe to be true about you? What an essential question that you must ask. Because one day, you will stand in front of your maker, and he will ask you this question. Did you believe that I loved you? Did you? That I actually desired you? Do you believe in this moment that he loves you just the way you are, not the way you're supposed to be, just the way you are right now, with all of your flaws, that he loves you. 
Do you want to know if your life is grounded in biblical truth? Do you want to know if your life is grounded in a biblical worldview? In something as important as the core of who you are? You ask a Christian, well, do you believe that God loves you? And they answer you, well, yes, I believe that. I've believed that for some time now. In fact, I've known that for many years, perhaps. Maybe some of you would say, I've known that since I was a child. Now watch the way that follower of Christ lives. Lives of anxiety and fear and shame and guilt and low self-esteem and remorse and self-condemnation and self-hatred. They believe that God loves them, but they believe that God loves them in some vague, distant, abstract way but they would be very hard-pressed to say that right now the essence of the Christian life is a love affair. Not just any love affair, but what Chesterton calls a furious love affair. And that that is what's going on in your life right now. Do you honestly believe that with all the wrong turns that you've made, all the mistakes, all the wicked decisions, all the detours that you should not have taken, all of the sin, all of the degraded love in your life, that God has actually used them all and that He's brought you to this place. And in His Word, He says to you, in this moment, you are standing on holy ground. You are in the presence of God. And I know the worst thing about you. Don't tell me that's a small thing. Now watch the dominoes fall with these lies. If there's nothing wrong with you, and you're basically good, and if you're mere biology, and you're just a clump of cells, and you don't need a savior, look at broken worldview number three. This is what Christians believe. Life has no value. It makes sense, doesn't it? I'm fine. I'm just a bunch of stardust and just a clump of cells. Life has no value. The most shocking discovery to me is that the majority of Americans now believe that life has no intrinsic value. Six out of ten adults do not view life as sacred. A substantial large percentage of the population saying, quote, life is what you make it, but it has no other value. Another crazy quote, life does not attain its full value until we reach our highest point of evolution expression. Again, I don't even know what that means. One out of ten adults saying they have no idea of how to appraise the value of a human life. And the most obvious domino from this non-biblical worldview spills over to the issue of, of abortion. And the public is split right down the middle of this. You know this. In fact, the public is split right down the middle about whether the Bible has even anything to say about this. Or is it just some ambiguous perspective on the morality of aborting a child? About 150 million Americans would not even consider looking at the Bible because they reject the Bible as a guide regarding abortion. Never mind the millions upon millions of Christians who either have no idea what the Bible even says about it, or even if they did know what the Bible says about it, here's what they say, I don't like what the Bible has to say about it, so I'm going to ignore what the Bible has to say about it. To which I would say, you have no integrity in your walk with Christ if you're going to discard the bits that you don't like. If you are here, 
and you have aborted a child. Or if you have a girlfriend, or a wife, or a friend who aborted a child, I need you to hear two things. You are loved in this place. You are deeply loved in this place. And you're loved by God. And there is grace and love and acceptance and forgiveness to be found in Jesus Christ and in this community. And we will never shun you. And we will never ostracize you. And we will never belittle you. We will never look down on you. For one very simple reason. Because every other one of us here, just like you, in a million ways, have fallen short of the glory of God and are desperately in need of His grace also. From the heart of a pastor and a shepherd, I am so glad that you are here today and that you are a part of this flawed community. God loves you and we love you and you are welcome in this place and you are welcome into the core of this family because with God, all things are possible. The second thing I have to say is harder. But to not say this would be to fail you. God is the judge of sin. Which means God is the judge of all who take innocent lives. And we all need to hear us. Every person listening to me. God is the judge of women who have aborted babies. Of men who have encouraged abortion, of parents and grandparents who have supported abortion, of doctors who have performed abortions, of leaders who have permitted abortions, of pastors who have counseled people towards abortions, of legislators and others who have worked to make abortions possible. Every one of us have played a role in abortion, need to call on the name of Jesus Christ. And I know that that's hard to hear, and I know that that's not popular, but that comes from a root worldview that says life has no human value. Can I tell you what is actually lovely to hear? What would be precious for you to grasp? Here's what the Bible says about the value of human life, including your life. Here's what the Bible says about you. You are of infinite worth. From the moment of conception, this is what the Word of God says. You are made in the image of God, and you are seen by God in the secret place as you are being woven together in your mother's womb. You are valued and treasured. Perhaps the supreme achievement of the Holy Spirit in your life is the revelation of the simple truth that you are loved by God, that you are chosen and beloved, that you are accepted, and that the value of your life is not measured in money or bitcoin coin or silver or gold or any of those cheap resources. Your life is actually measured in blood. And I cannot state this with greater emphasis. According to the mind of the Father, your Creator, your value and your worth is calculated in the shed blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. That's your value. Anything less than that is a lie. When you hear Worthless, useless, unimportant, waste of space, lies. 
sad, ugly, invalid mistakes. It's just lies. Neglected, broken beyond repaired, used and abused, and therefore tainted and unwanted. It's lies. Forgotten, shameful, unforgivable, guilty, lies. Jesus' blood is the exact measure of your value. And if you're living and operating under any other value system, then you are misunderstanding the grasp of reality that would say you are diminished and you are reduced and you are less than. The world would tell you there is no value to human life. Your creator tells you in this moment you are valued at the life of his son, Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 5, Christ arrives right on time to make this happen. He didn't and doesn't wait for us to get ready. He presented himself for this sacrificial death when we were far too weak and rebellious to do anything to get ourselves ready. And even if we hadn't been so weak, we wouldn't have known what to do anyway. We can understand somebody dying for a person worth dying for. We can understand how someone good and noble could inspire us to a selfless sacrifice. But God put his love on the line for us by offering his son in sacrificial death while we were of no use whatever to him final broken worldview and it is this world's broken worldview solution and here's their solution we'll fix it we'll fix everything Americans are looking to solve the problems of this world they are and the problem is plainly obvious to Americans on a daily basis. Do you want to know the three things that Americans are looking to to fix this problem? This is laughable. Politicians. This is what the survey said. Policy and economics. Best of luck to you. I don't preach politics from the pulpit. I never have. I preach the gospel. Romans chapter 13 certainly points us towards submission to those who rule over us. Those governing authorities that we should be praying for them. I think it is a wonderful thing when followers of Jesus Christ enter into that field. I think that's fantastic. Praise God. But I think there's a sense in which we're looking at things quite backwards. I feel as though we're like Adam and Eve running around in the garden looking for leaves, trying to hide ourselves and cover ourselves up, fumbling and tripping. Church, what is the problem? Here it is. The underlying issue is ill-formed character and a broken moral compass. Amen. There it is. Social and cultural depravity and anarchy. Where does that come from? It comes from moral and character deficiencies. They're not the causes of those things. From a biblical perspective, the problem is that we have a sin nature. That's the problem. It's not that we need better politicians, better economics, and better policy. That would be nice. But the problem is that we have a sinful nature, pure and simple. We can deny it, but it still exists. It's not popular to admit, but it, the baseline problem is our rebellion against God's goodness and His holiness, driven by our arrogance and our selfishness. Our problem is primarily spiritual. It is not primarily economic or political. 
Would you listen to the meager words of one shepherd standing in front of you right now? One that God has placed in your life. I don't want you to be the 6% of Christ followers who are oblivious to this sacred book right here. And as a result, you're fumbling forward in life, trying to figure out the wrong answers to the wrong questions. All the while, doing that in a self-congratulatory manner. Thinking, I think I'm wise. Oh, what a recipe for disaster. Today, I want to point you to the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Today, I want you to latch a hold of Him. To humbly and submissively commit to following His Word. Not just the bits that you like, but following the Word of God. Church, I want you to read a scripture with me. And I want you to read it out loud and good and loud. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and heal their land. Let that be the manner upon which we live our lives. Alma Online, Mount Pleasant. We're going to read it one more time, but we're going to read it louder. Everyone together. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Let's pray. Father, we will listen to you even when it's hard to do so. Because we trust that you are good and that you know what is best for us. Forgive us for claiming to follow you, but only doing so in token, only doing so as a label, like checking a box in a survey. Forgive us for thinking ourselves wise in our own eyes and abandoning what you have said ignoring what you have said or refusing to listen to what you say to us. God, in this moment, in your presence, we humble ourselves. Holy Spirit, would you lead us towards maturity in Jesus Christ? We commit our lives to your word, to reading it, obeying it, responding to it, responding to the preached word of God, leaning into your word, memorizing your word, living by your word. We are a people of your word and we will take you at your word. So God, thank you for your leadership in our lives at this moment. Amen. Church, I want to put a resource on the screen for uh, us all, and we're just going to leave it up there even after I dismiss for a few minutes. If there's anyone here and you need some care, particularly post-abortive care, we want to journey with you. And not just for women, but even for men who oftentimes are not given consideration or an opinion or any say. We want to care for you. We want to say to you that you can share your grief. And maybe for some of you listening to me today, that's not a secret you need to keep anymore. Because we would like to just love you and listen to you, and wrap our arms around you. Sometimes when a baby dies, 
people send cards or they send over a meal or they knock on the doors. Not with an abortion. Nobody does that. Could we do that for you? I know that I have just taken a strong moral stance on a very difficult and controversial issue. But we want to walk with you and love you through that restoration process. Church, I want you to be praying for this body. Next week will probably be more difficult. But I love you. You're dismissed. Have a good week.